Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well, the StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5 of the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast. My name is Leslie Watts. I'm a StoryGrid certified editor, and I help fiction and nonfiction writers craft epic stories that matter. And I'm Valerie Francis. I'm also a certified StoryGrid editor. I'm also a writer, and I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. So this week, if you're watching this on the video, you might already have a clue about what story we're going to talk about because Valerie is wearing her uh, Gryffindor scarf, which is wonderful. And I hear you also have a wand. Is that right, Valerie? I do. I am a proud Gryffindor. My Patronus charm is a panther. Thank you very much. And I have the Elder Wand. I have one spell. You want to know what it is? I do want to know what it is. And I only do it on my computer or my notebooks. Okay. And it is Creato Bestsellerum. How do you like Brilliant. it? <laughs> I love it. I, I love don't it. get out very much. Does it show? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Well, this week, Valerie, we're studying the core event of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Woohoo! Focusing on chapter 28, which is Flight of the Prince. Now, you may recall we discussed this story in the final season of the roundtable, um, but today we're going to focus on this individual scene within the story. And we're focusing on scenes this season because scenes are the building blocks of stories. So if you want to write a story that works, you must be able to write a scene that works. So, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince is a global action epic savior plot with worldview maturation. And here's a brief overview of the three acts of the story. In the beginning hook, after months of Death Eater attacks, Harry spies Draco Malfoy up to no good in the dark arts shop. But when his friends won't listen to Harry's suspicions that Draco Malfoy is a Death Eater, Harry must decide whether to investigate on his own or just let it go. On the train to Hogwarts, Harry spies Malfoy, who curses him, bloodies his nose, and leaves him under his invisibility cloak, where, thank goodness, Luna helps him make his way to school. In the middle build, the school year gets underway with the mysterious attacks on students and attempts on Dumbledore's life. But when Dumbledore tells Harry they need a particular memory from Slughorn, and Harry botches his first attempt to get the information, he must decide whether to use liquid luck to get that information. 
He takes the potion and convinces Slughorn by talking about his mother. Slughorn agrees and shares the vital memory. And in the ending payoff, Harry and Dumbledore seek and then return to Hogwarts with what they believe to be a horcrux. But when Snape kills Dumbledore, Harry must decide whether to keep his promise to do nothing. But Harry chases Snape and Malfoy while a battle rages within Hogwarts. The two escape, and the Horcrux locket turns out to be a fake. Oh, so this is a hard one. But let's get into the scene. Again, we're looking at chapter 28, Flight of the Prince. And we're going to talk about the scene type first. So we look at what function the scene serves in the story, and usually this is focused on the editor scene type. Well, here we have the core event, the hero at the mercy of the villain, or as we are now sometimes calling it, the luminary agent at the mercy of the shadow agent. And then we have the writer's scene type, and the way I'm framing this is externally, we have a pursuit scene, but internally, this is all about Harry coming to terms with the truth. I totally agree with you. It just made me laugh when I heard you call it uh, a pursuit scene, because in my mind, I said, oh, it's a chase scene. You know, I just really plain language. <laughs> <laughs> now, actually, so it's a chase scene in my mind and specifically a foot chase Uh, There's also car chases and all kinds of other stuff. And in my opinion, chapters 27 and 28, and 27 is the whole bit in the tower where Snape actually kills Dumbledore. um, And Malfoy was supposed to do it and couldn't, and it was Snape. And that whole time, Harry is um, frozen. (laughs) He can't do anything. He's observing only. He's not even an active character in that scene at all so in my opinion chapter 27 the bit in the tower and chapter 28 the bit where harry is chasing snape and the death eaters combine to form what robert mckee calls a set piece so i'll talk a bit more about that in a few minutes Okay, great. So this is, of course, as I said, the core event of an action story. It's the scene everyone's waiting for. This is when the life value shift happens, the big one for the story. This is when the core need is fulfilled or not. And this is where we have the height of the core emotion. So everything comes together in this big moment. And because this is an epic action epic story where we're talking about the fate of the world, um, there needs to be a lot of people, a lot of characters involved in the scene. It has to represent the scope of the true conflict. And so we have about 23 characters on stage actively doing things, interacting here in this scene. And then one of the things that's really cool about this scene too is we're at Hogwarts, 
But we move from the astronomy tower and then we go into the corridors that lead outside across the grounds past Hagrid's hut to the gates of Hogwarts. And then we come back to the tower. And this movement from inside that really tight space to outside and ultimately where Snape and Malfoy escape from Hogwarts, that's the outside world, right? So we got a, a, some big transitions happening. And it allows us to get a great perspective on everything that's happening, even though we are locked into Harry's point of view. Okay, Valerie, let's talk about the power dynamic. What is going on in this scene? We've said this a number of times, and the more scenes that we study, and the more I think about this, the more I'm convinced that the power dynamic and figuring out who has the power, who wants the power, I think that's the way into this whole scene type thing. I really do. So at the most macro level, um, this is Harry and, and, and the white hats against Voldemort and the black hats, right? But on a more personal level, it's Harry against Snape. Well, and Malfoy, but really Malfoy to me sort of falls off the edge here now as being um, a foe. Yeah. It's in the earlier books in the series. He's a lot of fun. Now he's a lot of fun in the whole series of books, but he's much more of an antagonist in the earlier books because they're younger. And that's the, that's the realm. That's the level of world that's that Harry is dealing with. He's not yet dealing with Voldemort and the big world issues he's dealing with his world and mm -hmm. his 11 year old world at hogwarts malfoy is the antagonist the main antagonist in lots of places mm -hmm. uh, here he's starting to fade into the background and of course we learn that you know he's really not that bad a guy he's he he, he redeems himself he's got a wonderful redemption plot um yeah so i i kind of yeah, he's there. And I think, I think this is a really important scene for Draco, or the chapter 27, I should say. I, I have a hard time separating these into two scenes. I have to yeah. be honest. Yeah. Uh, there's a chapter break there because there would need to be, otherwise the scene would be 50 pages long. But in my mind, it's all one big thing. So this is where we see what Draco is made of, right? Mm -hmm. Character is revealed through action under pressure. Yeah. Draco is under enormous pressure here. What's riding on this for him? His family and everyone he loves. If he doesn't kill Dumbledore, Voldemort's going to kill his family. And yet he still can't do it. That tells us really who Malfoy is. So in my mind, Malfoy in that moment ceases to be an antagonist because we know when push comes to shove, he's not going to hurt Harry. He is going to side with the light within him, which is one of the themes, right, through running through this whole series of books that we all have light and dark within us. Sirius has this whole conversation with um, Harry in one of the books, Order of the Phoenix maybe, I can't remember, where he's, 
He's saying we all have good and bad in us, and it's whichever one we choose, that is who we are. So even though Malfoy is growing up in that world uh, of Death Eaters and with an expectation that he will become a Death Eater, and I think, in fact, he does, inside, he keeps choosing the light. So it's, it's, a, it's an important point in the story for Malfoy as well as the others. Right. And, you know, interestingly, he's choosing the light, but he's choosing it in a more passive way. Like he's choosing not to pursue the dark. Right. And I think the reason for that is that he hasn't had the same transformative experiences that Harry has. Harry, you know, has had he's been tested more. He's had more um, opportunities to grow. Um, and so that is, and then he's just a more active person or uh, character anyway. So it's a really, I think it's really interesting to contrast Harry's behavior in 28 with Malfoy's behavior in 27 because Malfoy just can't like he doesn't do the spell even though he has Dumbledore at his mercy whereas Harry desperately tries to get Snape yeah absolutely and you're right Harry is a much more mature character than most of the other characters in the book because he's because of what he's gone through. Malfoy, yeah. like you say, hasn't gone through those things. He hasn't been tested yet. This is really his first real test in his life. He's only, what, 16 or 17, something like that. So, you know, he's, he has both of his parents. They are well-to-do. His, his parents have status in their world. They have house elves. He hasn't <laughs> really had to work that right. hard. Yeah as opposed to Harry, who was in a cupboard, right, under the stairs. Very different. Um, and, and you're right. I hadn't thought to contrast Malfoy in Chapter 27 with Harry in Chapter 28, but I'm kind of doing it mentally now as we're recording. And it is very telling. Characters reveal through action, so look at their actions. Right. There's a real reason the Sorting Hat put Harry in Gryffindor. And, yes. and we see it over and over and over. <laughs> yes, yes. So the point of conflict here is, you know, Harry wants to catch Snape. And it's part of this, it's part of his attempt to deny the fact that Dumbledore is really gone. If he can catch Snape, if he can get them together, he's got a chance to reverse whatever's happened. Um, of course, Snape wants to escape with Draco, but he also wants to keep the secret of his promise to Dumbledore. So it's very tricky, and that means not killing Harry, too. So he's, he's got a very, he has a very uh, difficult line to tread here. And when you look, when you reread these chapters, after you finish reading the whole series, and you know the truth of Snape, In fact, that's a really good exercise. If you've finished reading the series, go back and read these two chapters, chapter 27, 28 oh, yeah. of The Half-Blood Prince, and look at J.K. Rowling's skill here. Look how deftly 
she is threading that needle because we see Snape through Harry's eyes. Right. Harry, even though he's more mature and more worldly than other kids his age, he is still a kid. He does not have the wealth of experience that Dumbledore and Snape and the other members of the Order of the Phoenix have. And they, we are told many times throughout this series that the Order of the Phoenix are keeping Harry in the dark. They are intentionally not telling him everything because he's a kid. Come on. He's got enough. You don't, adults don't take the, the burden of adult life and all those big, heavy, serious things and dump them on a teenager's shoulders. It's not a fair thing to do. Like, you know, here in, in the muggle world, we don't talk about to our 16-year-olds about uh, how are we going to pay the mortgage? How are we going to pay the heat bill? How are we going to do? Because that's our jobs as the parents. They will eventually learn that, but we, we teach them things like financial responsibility a little bit at a time in, in the degree that they can handle it. And this is where um, Mrs. Weasley really comes into play because she is the one who is saying, don't overwhelm this guy. He's, Harry is dealing with a lot. We know how much he is still going to have to deal with. Let's make sure we give him a solid foundation so he can deal with it. And he doesn't need to know everything all right now. So he doesn't know about Snape. But for the others, even though they may not know what the deal is between Snape and Dumbledore, it's enough for Hagrid, Rebus, and the others that Dumbledore trusted him. And that's all they need to know because they've been through enough with Dumbledore. They've been through the first battle with Voldemort. Harry doesn't remember that, obviously. He was a newborn. He was an infant. So to see how J.K. Rowling presents Snape in this way that can be interpreted, one way when you're reading it through Harry's eyes, and when we read this first, we think, I mean, that's a big shocker. <gasps> ah, Snape's a Death Eater. Ah, you know, this is awful. I knew it. <laughs> yeah, we knew it. We knew it. <laughs> and then in the next book to realize, and, Ma and Malfoy says in chapter 27 to Dumbledore, you know, you old fool, don't you know he's a double agent? Well, yeah, he is, but he's a double agent for the side of the good, right? The, the, the Dumbledore side, not the Voldemort side. And the reason is because he loves Lily. And Dumbledore knows how deep love is and how in the, at the end of the day, that is going to, especially for Snape, it was always unrequited love, but he still loved her. And he would, that's the only reason he's tolerating Harry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And right. he will never kill Harry because she's Lily's son. Mm -hmm. So when the other Death Eaters are, are, I can't remember the curse they put on him, but when they're torturing him, he says, that's not our job. We have to keep him for the Dark Lord. Right. So that's a really great excuse because we all buy that. Right. We all buy that. The Death Eaters buy it. Harry buys it. It allows him to keep his cover. 
but we know he wants to protect Harry. He also wants to protect Malfoy. Snape is, I mean, he's not a, you know, he's not like Mr. Weasley in that level of, um, you know, goodness. He, he definitely has got lots of shades of gray, but again, like Malfoy at his core, when he is under pressure, what are the choices that he makes? Yeah. He chooses to defend the good and to side with the good and put himself at great personal risk to save the child of the woman he loves. Now, come on. And this is in a kid's book. I know. And it's also, you know, in some ways, it's easy. Well, no, in, in a lot of ways, it's easier to be the person who is standing up for for the the right right like the luminary agent who is allowed to be a luminary agent out in the world like they don't have to hide who they are but for snape he has to hide his work he has to allow himself to be misunderstood which is a big sacrifice i think and it's yeah it's he's one of those uh characters that's so interesting because he has so many dimensions cuz he's not just he's not just a disgruntled um you know status tragic character who never got the job he wanted until the end of the series and and that sort of thing he's a really deep character so he's yeah. an amazing character and you know portrayed in the films by Alan Rickman, who well, I'm yeah. a big fan of. Uh, what a great casting choice. Definitely. But there's so much there to mine. Mm-hmm. So because I write middle grade fiction, I talk to a lot of children's writers. And hands down, the biggest trap that we fall into is thinking that one, that it's easy to write a kid's book. In my opinion, children's literature is the hardest to write because kids uh, take no prisoners. They don't like your stuff. They're going to tell you, and they're going to throw it down, and they're going to demand that you do better. I think more adult writers should do the same, frankly, because it forces us to level up Mm -hmm. and forces us to look at things like, well, did we just write three chapters of exposition, and how can we make that better? Kids will not give you a pass on that at all. And so what a lot of children's writers will do is create very black and white characters, two-dimensional, stereotypical, and it it is a really easy trap to fall into. Absolutely. And on your first draft, go for it. Just get to the end of the first draft and then look back and see what you have and see, okay, well, my main character is an 11-year-old boy, um, but there's no depth to him. How can I add some layers there? Look at Harry. Harry's got tons of layers. Mm -hmm. Even Ron, bless his heart, has layers. (laughs) Okay, well, how about we rush through... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or run through the uh, the scene analysis. We start with the four Socratic questions uh, that give us the story event. And Valerie, you're going to walk us through those really quickly. 
Absolutely. So question one, what are the characters literally doing? That is, what are their micro on the ground actions? Harry's chasing Snape and the Death Eaters. Question two, what is the essential tactic of the characters? That is, what macro behaviors are they employing that are linked to a universal human value? So as Leslie already mentioned, Harry is trying to come to terms with what's happened to Dumbledore. And initially, he's trying to save Dumbledore by catching Snape. And by the end, he's mourning the loss of his mentor. Three, what universal human values have changed for one or more of the characters in the scene? Which one of those value changes is more important and should be included um, in the StoryGrid spreadsheet? All right, so this is a massive point in the series, right? It's huge. So. Yeah. Not only has Dumbledore died, but Snape has been revealed as a double agent. This is also a cuttlefish, by the way. Remember we talked about cuttlefish? Yes. The opposite of a red herring is a green cuttlefish. <laughs> That's right. So we, we don't understand the clue that's here. They're right there. We have, especially if we look at 20, chapters 27 and 28 together. Right. It lines up when we look at it. We can see who Snape really is, and we wonder how we ever could have misjudged him. Right. It's so good. Um, Agatha Christie's um, uh, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Yeah. A masterwork in this. So if your story has these cuttlefish, has this big revelation at the end of, um, oh, that's who did it, and I, I should have known all along, Kind of like the, the sixth sense moment at the end. We should have realized that he, the Bruce Willis character was dead. Check out Agatha Christie's um, Murder of Roger Ackroyd. We've got so many spoilers in this episode. <laughs> well, I mean, none of these no, things are new. Right, absolutely. I think it's fun. And if they haven't figured out by now that it's all just spoiler alert territory, then, <laughs> right. well, they know now. <laughs> Uh, okay, so what have I got here? So um, with Hogwarts and the students and staff, I said they, you know, they're safe to unsafe or protected to threatened. Fang, poor Fang, he's safe to unsafe to safe again. One quick note about animals. They always need to end up safe. Uh, reader might forgive you for killing a kid. <laughs> they will not forgive you for killing a pet. It's true. There are, there are lots of stories where a child dies and we're heartbroken and sobbing. And if that happens, it has to be integral to the whole point of the story. It can't be gratuitous. But you never kill off an animal. Ian Rankin talks about that all the time. He sort of offhandedly gave Rebus a dog, Brillo, and now can't get rid of this dog. It's hilarious. Careful what um, you include early in the series. That's right. Uh, okay, so for Snape, he goes from, I'm saying concealed to revealed, sort of. Yeah. I think he doesn't really change. It's just uh, from Harry's point of view, and right. then, which is our point of view, too. Hagrid, he goes from brave and strong to heartbroken and vulnerable. I love Hagrid, too. Okay, so Harry, this is the, the value change I'm going to take and put on the spreadsheet because he's our main character. So like the others, obviously, he goes from safe to unsafe. Um, but the value shift is also hopeful that Dumbledore can be saved to hopeless. And I think that works on the external genre. But I think really what's, 
really important here is Harry's internal shift. Now, we, get, we run into this all the time, uh, Leslie, and I just think it bears mentioning here again. When you pick a scene from a book, like we do a lot of this in the certification training, where we don't know the whole story lots of times. It's just a, a scene in isolation. And you right. can come up with all kinds of value shifts. Well, the terms, yes, but actually picking up on different shifts that are happening within the scene. Right. I looked at, because I didn't have time to reread the whole book and I couldn't, I, I haven't mapped out Harry's whole arc from the beginning of this book to the end. I looked at the scene in isolation. Mm -hmm. Anyone who wants to look at it within the scene will come, or as a scene within the context of the whole, will come up with other things. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're wrong or that I'm wrong. So internally, I think this is a worldview shift for Harry. Um, maturation for sure. We talked about this. He's gone through a lot, but this is another shift. All is not as it seems. Dumbledore is human, fallible. Wow. Even though yeah. he is the big mentor, like these are huge life lessons. There's also a little revelation in here. Um, it, it, he, he's still misguided, but he does discover that Snape is the half-blood prince, and we didn't know that up until this point. Right. And he discovers that the necklace is not one of the Horcruxes. So he kind of moves there from ignorance to wisdom a little bit. Yeah. All right. So question four, what is the story event that sums up the scenes on the ground actions, essential tactics and value change? We'll enter that event in the story grid spreadsheet. So I came up with this. Harry chases Snape Malfoy and the Death Eaters across the grounds of Hogwarts in an effort to keep them from reaching the exterior gate and disparating. Harry is unsuccessful and all hope to save Dumbledore is lost. All right. So that's the story event. We put that in the spreadsheet. And then the five commandments of storytelling are the way we unwind that, the way we deliver that to the reader. So the inciting incident, Dumbledore is killed. And that's at the end of the prior scene. But then also, as a result, the body bind curse is lifted and so Harry can act. There are a whole bunch of progressive complications. It is, this scene is a really great example of throwing a bunch of progressive complications of different types at the character in quick succession. So he's got to get past the brutal Death Eater. Then he stumbles into that big battle within the school. He's attacked. There are bodies on the floor. Um, he sees his, his love interest fighting a Death Eater. And then he sees his friends and other members of the, the Order of the Phoenix also fighting Death Eaters. And he's got a mini crisis in these situations. Should he stay and fight with his friends or should he go, you know, continue to uh, chase Snape um, to, you know, to in his mind to try to save Dumbledore? Okay, so he trips over Neville. He's attacked by another Death Eater. He slips in the blood on the floor. Then he's not sure where did Snape go. He's got to navigate the labyrinth of staircases. He encounters 
guess who? Some Hufflepuff students just hanging about, getting in the way. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And then once he's outside, he sees that Snape has a substantial lead way across the grounds. It's cold, which is really a minor one, but it's just another thing, right? Remember the weather. It is a good complication to include. There's a flash of light from an unknown source. He's, you know, has, spends a moment. What is that? I don't know. Move on. Then Hagrid is engaging with the Death Eaters. And so again, he's got this little beat level crisis. Should I stop and help my friend or be responsible for another death? And then finally, Amicus and Electo catch up with Harry and attack him. And then we get to the turning point progressive complication, which is that Snape and Malfoy make it past Hagrid, which is the action part of that. And then he has the revelation, of course, there is nothing between them and the gates of Hogwarts outside which Snape will be able to disapparate. So... Does he use an unforgivable curse against Snape or not? Well, he tries, but Snape is able to block his attempts. So Snape and Malfoy escape. Harry and Hagrid return to the tower where they find Dumbledore's body. He is dead. There is no denying it. And of course, Harry learns that what they thought was the Horcrux is actually a fake. So, like, what a scene, right? Absolutely. And this is sort of the second part of the big scene that started in the tower. Right. So, um, why don't we talk about, like, what are the other things that are special about this scene? What, what are some things that struck you as you were going through it? So many, but I'll, I'll try not to talk for three hours. <laughs> I... When, we were, when I was reading this in preparation for today, I was thinking back to when we did this same story on the round table. And yes. then I was watching the film. And at the time I thought, it's so strange. Harry is not, Harry of Harry Potter is not active in this scene. Yeah. How bizarre. And I, I had to think about why that might be it and why does it work? Because it absolutely does work. When... And if you want to know what I said, you can go back and listen to that episode. When, <laughs> when I was preparing for this, I read both chapters together. And in chapter seven, Harry is very much a bystander like he is in the film. This scene in chapter 28 is really cut down short in the film. And right. It, and and I, it sort of seems in the film like a resolution to the scene we just saw. So I, I wasn't reading it as its own scene. In the novel, it's very much its own scene. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one important takeaway for writers, especially if the film that we're watching is an adaptation of a novel, because we get this question, Leslie, a lot. Can the crisis moment be another characters and not the protagonists? Sometimes it can. And I always think about the example in Billy Elliot, where the middle build crisis is Billy's father's, because Billy's a little kid. He can't choose whether he goes to study ballet or not. That's the parent's decision, whether to allow the child to go or not. So it makes mm-hmm. perfect sense. In the case of the Half-Blood Prince, I think in the film, I think it was... 
a decision on the production side, maybe for time or maybe who knows what they had to do with the script to adapt this large novel down to two hours of film. So when you see something in a film like that and you wonder, I wonder why the protagonist is not very active in the scene. Go check it out in the novel and see if there's a difference there. Yeah. Another key thing is uh, the emotional connection in Harry Potter. I mean, this is one of the major reasons why we love this series so much. We hmm. want Harry to succeed. We desperately want Harry to succeed. He's, he's a little boy and we're watching him grow up. And that kind of storytelling, I mean, obviously her structure is great and all that good stuff, but that kind of storytelling yes. trumps the fine line writing. And it pains me to say that because my training was all about the line writing until I, I discovered StoryGrid. And, and then all of a sudden, a lot of the questions I had got answered and a lot of the pieces of the puzzle <laughs> suddenly appeared and I could figure out why some things I wrote worked and some things I wrote didn't work. If you look at the line writing in these two chapters, the thing that leapt out at me was like holy ellipses Batman. She uses a lot of ellipses and a lot of M dashes. And I don't think any of them need to be there. I mean, I'd have to go back and do a, you know, like a tight line edit, but this is where I remember Leslie Sean telling us like the credo, the editor's credo, do no harm. Do mm -hmm. no harm. If the ellipsis, if there's like every second sentence ends with dot, 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 but the thing is working, leave it alone. Don't touch it. So we can really get tied up spending hours or days looking for exactly the right word in a sentence. That's not where we should be putting that much effort, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. We don't ignore it. Like in an ideal world, my goal as a writer is to marry those two. Great line writing with great structure. That's the goal I'm shooting for. I don't know how long it'll take me to get there, but that's the goal I'm shooting for. And when I hear the A-list authors, that's one of the things they all talk about. As wonderful as they are, they're still honing their craft. Mm -hmm. um, Dumbledore's death, I talked about this a little bit earlier, I think. It's not gratuitous. She didn't just yeah. toss it in there because she ran out of ideas and she needed something. There's right. a really strategic reason. It's really important that he dies and the way he dies and who kills him, right? I'm back to yeah. my elder wand. We find all that out in the end. <laughs> and, and Dumbledore and Snape are protecting Malfoy. They're, they're the adults still protecting the children. And that's one yeah. of the reasons that Snape is stopping Harry from doing the unforgivable curse. I mean, yes. he's protecting himself, obviously. Yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't want Harry to do that to himself. Right. Right? Um, so the lesson there for me is everything that's in a book is in there for a reason. If there's no reason, take it out. Uh, the chase scene example, I talked um, a little bit about that earlier. To me, the two hardest types of scenes to write are action scenes and sex scenes because they're both describing things we don't typically narrate. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? 
Yeah. If someone is shopping, you narrate that. Sure, you can describe someone shopping, no big deal. But if they're having a sword fight, or in this case, a wand fight, or, or a, a foot chase, these are things that we're used to seeing visually. With no, There's no language happening in our minds when we're watching a foot chase in a film. Like when we did Baby Driver, there's great, a great foot chase in there. We're not narrating that in our heads. We're just watching it and enjoying it. No, no. And you know, if you run it, um, if you run a film with the descriptive narration, you can get a feel for what that, what not to do in essence, right? Because it's just, this is, this happens. And then this happens, this happens, this happens, you know, and it's very dry and really not engaged. It's so much more difficult to what does the reader need to know and what do you know what do we it's so it's such a complicated issue and i agree with you chase and uh and sex scenes are among the hardest for sure so if you if you're writing an action story or if you have action scenes in your story again have a look at harry potter or other popular action genre stories and see how the author handled the action bits. Actually take a highlighter. Yeah. Look at the verbs that they're using and how many adverbs they're not using. <laughs> how many adjectives they're not using. How long is the sentence? Do the sentence lengths vary? All this type of stuff adds to the pacing and creates that pacing. Uh, sometimes there's onomatopoeia. So if a character's running and you can hear their, if it was happening around you, you would hear the, the feet hitting the ground, the word choices could mimic the sound of the foot, the feet falling. There's so much that can be done. This is why we need masterworks. I mean, I really don't know how to do it without studying masterworks, Leslie. I really don't. All right, so this gets me to the set piece thing that I talked about at the top. So when I took McKee Genre Week seminar, a year or two ago, I can't remember now, we did a whole day on the action genre. And one of the things he talked about was set pieces, which, at, I mean, I just took notes because I was just trying to keep up, frankly. But I kind of thought, I remember thinking at the time, well, this doesn't really apply to novels. This is a film thing. But not so. It absolutely applies to novels. And this is a prime example. So a set piece... Um, let me read his definition here. He said that um, an action set piece is essentially a sequence designed to create excitement and tension via the threat of death. And they can also have an element of fun, although that's not the case here. And the example he gave of it having an element of fun was Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, the whole bit where he's under the car and everything. That's just a lot of fun in that scene or in that sequence, in that set piece. So we talked a lot already, Leslie, about chapter 27 and 28 being one big chunk of the story. Mm -hmm. So it's two scenes that combine to form a set piece, a sequence. It's a two-sequence scene. Uh, right. Sorry, it's a two-scene sequence. Two-scene sequence. <laughs> that is working together to form a set piece in an action story so that J.K. Rowling can create excitement and tension through this threat of death. So first we have Dumbledore, who's actually dead. 
Snape just killed him. And then Harry runs after Snape and is being hit with all these curses all over the place. And we don't know. We know he's not going to die because we, we know there's going to be seven books in the series and the main <laughs> character is not going to suddenly disappear. But there is a real threat of death. And actually Harry at one point says, well, go ahead and kill me. Mm -hmm. So if you're wondering what a set piece is or you're wondering how sequences work, look at chapters 27 and 28 and see how they work together to form one big plot point. Right. Great. So some of the things I was looking at, you know, in this scene, so Harry, of course, Harry, who's the luminary agent, the hero, he survives. Um, but he is, as you point out, he's a hair's breadth from the negation of the negation, right? That's a fate worse than death. He actually, why don't you kill me? Right. And he's lost his mentor, who's not just his mentor and a really important person in his life, but he's a powerful wizard and he's got some know-how and some skills that they're going to need to fight Voldemort. You know, but of course, part of this resolution also includes this other downer that the locket that Dumbledore weakened himself to obtain isn't the real thing, right? It's just, it's really hard. And this is typical of the second, the end of a second book in a trilogy or the penultimate book in a, in a longer series. So this is, you know, it's a good book to study. The whole series is great to study. But if you're looking at what, what do we need that, that, end of the middle build of a series or a trilogy what do we need that to look like it needs to be this level of doom essentially <laughs> so a couple of other observations and you already brought this up valerie but of course snape's true motives are hidden and Again, this series and the story are great models for how to keep facts from the reader without cheating. Chapter 27, one of the best examples I've ever read. Everything Snape and Dumbledore do and say can be read multiple ways, depending on your point of view. Now, the other thing I really love about this scene is that the structure gives us this comprehensive view of what's happening. I mentioned this already, but it feels like an editorial or neutral omniscient point of view. But of course, if we had that point of view, it would feel like a cheat. You know, we, you, you know that Snape is not what he seems, but you're not telling us. Mm, that would not be okay. But when Harry leaves the tower, he stumbles into the battle. He makes his way to the, through the school. He encounters students who are not engaged in the battle, right? And then he gets out on the grounds. And we get this kind of bird's eye view, almost like, you know, in 27, Harry is like a fly on the wall. And it's almost like that again where he's like the moth from uh uh 
the Lord of the Rings story, right? <laughs> Who's like, we get to see a lot of things through the eyes of the moth. Um, well, that's kind of the way it is because he's observing things as he goes. So it's like a walk and talk. He's not talking, but you know, it's, um, it's that kind of thing. We're getting to see what's going on. Okay. So that's amazing. But what I really love is that this hero at the mercy of the villain scene for a novel, Harry meets challenges that he's encountered in the story before. Like you can go back to all to earlier scenes and find situations where when Harry had to deal with precisely these obstacles, but usually one at a time. Here he's getting hit with it all at once in quick succession. He's operating under deep stress, these, you know, major mental because how am I going to solve this problem, but also emotional obstacles, because, of course, Dumbledore is dead. And he's hoping to do something about that, but it looks like Snape is a traitor. And, you know, even the, uh, the feeling, aha, I was right, is not going to be enough to, you know, to lift one's spirits in this situation. So, it's his duty to fix the problem. He feels responsible for the deaths of his loved ones, but no one else. Also, no one else is available to do this. He's all alone. It's down to him. So it's no wonder really that he comes so close to a fate worse than death here. And it's really powerful in this moment to do this to the character. And then, and then of course, you know, it sets up so beautifully the final book in, in the series. So yes, it's a wonderful example. And we could talk about this all day, Valerie, but uh, we have things to do and we know you who are listening have things to do. So what are the, your key takeaways from this scene of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince? Well, first of all, it's, it's just a beautiful example of what a writer who has a mastery of her craft can do, of what is actually possible with words on a page yeah. and remember jk rowling harry potter this series may have been her first published series but she was studying stories and reading and writing since she was seven years old this is just who she is it's what she spent her time doing so by the time she got to this book she had maybe 30 years of experience under her belt how many of us have been obsessively reading and writing books since we were seven, not, not many. And again, I, I, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I don't really care. If you're writing a multi-book series, whether it's an epic fantasy or, or just a seven, eight, nine book series, if that is the story that's in your heart, by all means, go for it. Like, fill your boots. Absolutely. But please understand what it is you're getting yourself into. Please understand how long it's going to take. It took her 20 years to write the Harry Potter series, seven books in 20 years. It's really easy for us sitting here now 
looking at her like Smaug on her mound of gold <laughs> and say, I want that. Um, well, she has that because she worked really hard for a really long time and made very, very smart business decisions. So understand what you're getting yourself into, one, so that you can be kind to yourself and not beat yourself up when it seems like it's going too slowly or something, a scene that's in your mind is not translating out onto the page. Understand that you are taking on a lot. You're getting off the couch and running a marathon with nothing in between. And also so that you understand how important it is to study the masters. I mean, I said it before, I'll say it again. I really don't know how else to learn how to write if you're not reading a lot and writing a lot widely and deeply. Hear, hear. Yes. Um, and for me, I keep coming back to how clever the point of view choice is for this entire series. And I talked about that a lot when we did the entire story for the round table. So I won't belabor that here. But the, the way this scene using that point of view pays off so many storylines is beautiful. Um, and it's an expansive scene. It covers a lot of ground, both physically and emotionally, metaphorically. Um, but again, I think my biggest takeaway, if we're just talking about this scene, is the way that Rowling arranged the progressive complications. You could use this scene as a model for any expansive core event, whatever your genre. You just, you know, substitute, extrapolate, do what you need to do. Put your characters, your setting, your situation in those positions. But, but think about like, okay, so when a character is slipping in blood, you say you don't have blood, but what could that be like? It's where you're losing your footing. Well, how could you do that if it's a performance story? How could you do that more metaphorically or inside or, you know, whatever? So, so really think about these things in the abstract, but use this scene and write your own scene, just substituting your pieces for J.K. Rowling's. And that wraps it up for this week. Remember, if you want to become a better writer, you've got to write and you've got to read. Why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. And if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the Unpodcast at ValerieFrancis.ca slash Inner Circle or Writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit StoryGrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.